Bienvenue and welcome back to the land of desire. I'm your host, Diana, and this week we are celebrating a really special milestone. This podcast is officially three years old. Woohoo! It's been a wild ride. Over the past three years, I've created 50 episodes, which have been downloaded half a million times. And best of all, I've heard from hundreds of listeners along the way. So thank you to everyone who's written in with questions, suggestions for future episodes, and interesting personal anecdotes. This week, I'm featuring some of those listener questions in a Q&A episode, so everyone can learn more about what goes on under the hood, what I'm reading and listening to, and more. This week's episode is dedicated to two listeners in particular. Brienne, my greatest cheerleader who gave me the courage to turn my crazy dream into reality, and Stephanie, one of my dearest and oldest listeners who was going through a difficult time and wanted to know about new episodes. Stephanie, this episode is for you. Let's start with listeners Cecile and Sandra, who both wanted to know... What is your method when it comes to building an episode? How do you pick a theme? Do you already have a list or do you just wander around doing research and pick one? Where do you get your info and how do you distill it down to such understandable bits? There's a really important lesson that took me a very long time to learn. Don't make the podcast into homework. When I assign topics for myself too far out in advance or I commit myself to a multi-part series, I'll be honest. I usually end up losing interest by the time the episode rolls around or when I'm halfway through the series. I write a lot for my day job, most of which involves technical documentation or business correspondence. It's really important to me that the podcast be something that's not forced, and that means giving myself the freedom to pursue whatever weird interest is on my mind at a given time rather than drawing a subject from a predetermined list. I tend to think about whatever subject is intriguing me at a given moment in time in terms of what I'm reading or watching, and then I figure out how that subject might overlap with French history. This method has this great side effect of taking me down some really weird roads into parts of history that I might not have come across otherwise. For example, I have a really big interest in epidemiology, so I'm always trying to find stories about public health and diseases in French history. Another time, I was reading a lot about Neolithic art, and that's what drew me into learning about the Lascaux Caves, and then that helped me discover the Chauvet Cave, which I had never heard of before I started working on that episode. Right now, I'm reading and researching a lot about long-distance footpaths and hiking, especially across ancient paths in Europe, so don't be surprised if I might have an episode on pilgrimage routes coming up. Who knows? Once I have a subject in mind, the next task is to read, read, read. I spend the week prior to an episode just reading everything I can about a given subject and following whatever rabbit hole that research takes me down. I usually have like 50 tabs open at a time and my laptop is constantly giving up the ghost. Whenever possible, I draw from books, especially those published by university presses and peer-reviewed journals. Uh, If I can track down the primary source document, uh, which with a lot of Google research and archiving projects, I'm often able to do so nowadays, which is amazing. Um, This podcast has been a really fun way to practice my French reading and translation skills. 
I usually have a document for my notes where I organize things, uh, usually topically. So for example, in my previous episode on the Black Death in France, my notes section was divided into one section of bullet points about 13th century France, one section about the bubonic plague and, and how it transfers from person to person and so on, and then one section of notes about the history of the Hotel Dieu. Sometimes I'm copying down interesting passages, other times I'm just writing freeform summaries of what I've just read to kind of organize my thoughts and set the stage for my script writing. One really important exercise is I try to summarize what I'm reading out loud to my boyfriend. This helps me separate the wheat from the chaff. In other words, after that whole afternoon of reading, what actually stuck out in my memory? Because that's probably what's going to stick out in my listener's memory. Why did it stick out in my memory? Explain something to another person without referencing your notes and do it without being worried about judgment. Using enthusiasm to drive the creation of my narratives is really important, and it keeps me from going on tangents. I know, I know. It usually keeps me from going on tangents. And it also helps me to not drone on about something just because other people always drone on about that thing. Finally, it's the week of release. By Sunday night, I need to have my notes finished and, God willing, part of my script drafted already. By Monday night, I need to have my script completed. By Tuesday night, I've recorded my raw vocals and edited them to remove coughs and mistakes and to just generally improve the sound quality. On Wednesday night, I mix in any background music, which is absolutely the most time-consuming part of the entire process. Oh my god, if you ever start a podcast, don't add background music. And then... Finally, I create the blog post. Then I hit publish, and the last thing I do before I go to bed is set up all my social media posts and schedule them to go out in the morning. Woo! Next, Christine asks, I have to admit, food episodes are my favorite. Do you think there's any link between classic French cuisine and French Canadian dishes like poutine and tortière? Christine, food episodes are my favorite too. When I first began planning the show, I wasn't sure whether I should make the land of desire about French history in general or just specialize in French food history. I have to restrain myself sometimes, and sometimes I'll look back and realize I've spent like six episodes talking about food, and oh my god, it's time to change to something else. To answer your question about a possible connection between French cuisine and French-Canadian cuisine, absolutely there is. For example... Poutine is a uniquely Canadian invention, but it wouldn't be possible without a healthy serving of gravy. Gravy is derived from the old French word grané. We don't really know what grané meant, but we know that somewhere along the way a typo occurred and got stuck. Also, since tortière hails from Quebec, there's naturally a foundation of French cuisine behind it. Essentially, tortière is a particular kind of meat pie, one which happens to be served in a specific dish which the French traditionally use to prepare torte, or pie. Melissa asks, Do you speak French? And if so, what was it that really helped you? I love the language, but I'm really struggling with it. Zutela, what a question. <laughs> uh, I think it depends on who you ask. I'm pretty sure my native French-speaking listeners are like, no, she doesn't speak it at all. <laughs> uh, I would say it depends on who you ask and what part of my life we're talking about. When I lived in France, I was fluent, but I've lost so much since moving back to the States that it's like it never happened. Uh, I can still read French, but I struggle to understand spoken French. So what helps me? 
Here's a couple ideas. First, you have to be in an immersive environment where you're being asked to converse in French exclusively. I gained more fluency in French in my first four weeks in Paris than I did in two years of rigorous university French classes. Duolingo helps with vocabulary, but really not much else. You still need formal lessons and immersive conversations to get your head around the grammar. The Alliance Francaise network is a great resource, so I would look at the Alliance Francaise website and see whether they have a location near you. Once you have those resources in place, I find French language podcasts and books really helpful. I used to listen to news in slow French every morning. I also recommend the RFI, like, five-minute news update podcast. Uh, these help me practice my listening skills. Assuming that I'd been keeping on top of the news, I would have enough contextual clues to figure out the French that I didn't understand. The same principle goes for books. I always tell French students to pick up at least one Harry Potter book in French. You know the storyline by heart, so you can quit worrying about comprehension, and you just get to focus on understanding why they use the specific words they did in the order they did. In other words, you just get to focus on the grammar. With that said, again, I know my French listeners are constantly writing in to correct my French. Oui, je sais, je sais, je suis désolé. <laughs> Uh, another listener, Ellen, recently wrote in with the following advice. Ellen wrote, I learned about your podcast when you were interviewed by Oliver on the Earful Tower, and I have been enjoying your stories ever since. Thanks, Ellen. During the interview, you mentioned challenges with French pronunciation. Ellen continues, Well, although this may be exceedingly presumptuous, I promise, Ellen, it's not. It's very welcome. I want to share with you a wonderful resource, Jerry Metz, who provides lessons on French pronunciation for Anglophones. She is quite knowledgeable and helpful. Her web address is pronouncingfrench.com. Ellen, thank you so much. This is really helpful. I wanted to share it with everyone, and I will use it in the future so that hopefully it won't make my native French-speaking listeners cry when they hear me. Laura asks... What other podcasts about France do you listen to? I'll be honest, I don't personally listen to a lot of them on a regular basis because I don't want to be influenced by them. However, there are a number of podcasts I would always recommend to listeners. The Earful Tower and The Siècle focus specifically on France. The Lonely Palette is an art history podcast which frequently focuses on French history. I think there's a lot of overlap between listeners of this show and listeners who would enjoy those shows. Finally, there's two podcasts that I would recommend in particular, Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast and Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This. These two shows were the examples I used when I was trying to envision the kind of podcast I'd like to make, the kind of podcast that didn't quite exist. I loved the funny, sometimes snarky storytelling in Revolutions, as Mike made the minutiae of the French Revolution really easy to parse and follow along with. I think Mike is following me on Twitter now, so Mike, if you're listening, thank you. Four years ago, I was hiking around in the fields by my parents' house, listening to you talk about the French Revolution, wondering if I could do what you were doing. I wrestled with that idea for another year or so, until I discovered you must remember this. Karina's storycraft was exactly the kind of gossipy, casual tone that I wanted to recreate, and I loved her use of background music. 
Above all, she was an example of a woman running a narrative podcast and doing it all on her own. She was completely my mentor. She was totally my mentor when I was struggling to shape the concept of the show. And a year later, the land of desire was born. Christopher asks, can you discuss the history of the French 75 cocktail? Do you prefer an Aperol Spritz or a Kir Royale? Ooh, the French 75 is actually a tricky history. There's a legend that English soldiers came up with the drink during World War I because they wanted to serve highballs and were out of club soda. What was on hand? Champagne. Well, that's pretty doubtful to me. The origins of the drink are murky, but it does have the distinction of being one of the few classic drinks that was actually invented in America, and it was probably invented during Prohibition. It's not French at all. The champagne cup already existed in the 19th century, and when Charles Dickens served champagne cups with gin, he was essentially handing out French 75s all the way back in, like, 1885. As for the Aperol Spritz versus the Kir Royale, well, that's easy. My primary memory of an Aperol Spritz is drinking one in a plaza in Venice on a hot day. My primary memory of a Kir Royale? Well, someone once gave me a bottle of Chambord to celebrate my 21st birthday. Old enough to drink alcohol, but too broke to purchase anything good, one night I remembered the liqueur in my, the fancy bottle in my pantry, and I poured it into God knows what paint varnish was available to drink in a household of 11 college students. And I woke up the next morning wishing for a guillotine to get rid of this headache. I have shied away from cassis and raspberry-flavored liqueurs ever since. My next question comes from Riley. Do you ever feel that you have trouble explaining your love of another culture and language to people who do not share it? Haha, <laughs> constantly. People assume I'm French, and they don't understand why I would be this invested if I'm not. When I was originally brainstorming the idea of the podcast, I was actually thinking about a show on San Francisco history, and I was trying to choose between San Francisco history and French history. In the end, I figured there was probably a bigger market for the most visited place on Earth. So, you know, my ruthless capitalist heart went ahead with French history. But I do wish I had the opportunity to tell stories about the culture and the place where I live today. I'll probably just start writing about all the French immigration waves to Barbary Coast-era San Francisco, because I'm a modern woman and I don't have to choose. I can have it all. But anyway... There are tons of people who instantly understand the pull of France and her history, and there's a lot of people who don't get it. Eh, that's okay. There's a podcast out there for everyone. Next, a question from Sheena. I find the Gilets jaunes movement interesting. I feel like the French government hasn't understood that the population cannot be ignored. Can you or would you dare enlighten us on what is going on? I can't help but get the idea that history is repeating itself. Am I wrong? Well, Sheena, it's a timely question to be sure. I've asked myself many times whether I should be discussing the Yellow Vest movement. For example, this May, when my mother and I got caught in a Yellow Vest protest down the Rue Rivoli on our way to the Eiffel Tower. There's certainly a huge story, and I think for people who aren't currently living in or visiting France, it might be hard to comprehend what a big, all-pervasive movement it is. It's certainly being reported on back in the States, but you still kind of have to see it for yourself. 
So why am I not talking about it? Well, to be perfectly frank and honest with you, I'm not confident that I could do it justice. I'm not sure anyone could. The superb subreddit Ask Historians has a community cutoff. It says discussions can only take place around events from at least 20 years ago. It's hard to parse history when it's happening. You need a certain amount of remove. I'm going to quote directly from their discussion about this rule. The closer you get to the present, the less we know about where things are going, what really went on, what really mattered. We usually lack deep knowledge of sources as well and are reliant on journalistic accounts. That is, the first draft of history that is not really history at all and in retrospect is often severely lacking in the whole story. For example, try to imagine someone writing a definitive, all-encompassing history of 9-11 and imagine that they were trying to write that history in September of 2002. On the one hand, an entire year has passed. Surely that's enough time to review an event that we knew would be historical at the moment it happened. But if you had written that history in September 2002, you wouldn't have a single chapter in that book about the Iraq war because it wouldn't begin for another six months. You wouldn't even be able to give a clear, straightforward history on the facts of the day itself because the 9-11 Commission report wasn't released until July 2004. The point of talking about a historical event is to try to situate that event in a context to see what led up to it and what led away from it. And it's just too soon to apply that kind of thinking to a movement which is happening right now in the streets as we speak. Now, that doesn't mean I never cover recent events. I just spoke about the life of Karl Lagerfeld's famous cat, Choupette, who is eating caviar in a private jet somewhere above me as we speak. But the Gilets jaunes movement is far too serious to treat with that kind of unserious inquiry. I don't know any more than anybody else about how things will end. And 20 years from now, I'll probably regret my confident storytelling in that episode when Choupette is our supreme overlord. Peter asks, Do you have specific book recommendations on French history and culture that can supplement your amazing podcast? Oh, Peter, do I ever. I'm actually going to add the list that I'm about to read to you on the blog post for this episode, and I'll probably stick this list somewhere on the website, because this is a great question, and I'm really happy to answer it. If you only pick up one book recommendation from this podcast, make it Seven Ages of Paris by Alistair Horn. Alistair Horn was a legend. He spent his entire career studying French history, and in my mind, Seven Ages of Paris is his masterpiece. It is still the best single-volume history of a city that I've ever encountered. It's a shockingly reasonable length, considering it spans from the Ice Age to modern day, and it will have something to delight and intrigue you, I promise. I first read Seven Ages of Paris the summer before I moved to Paris, and it added deep value to my life when I was there. I reread it again these past two months, and it totally holds up. If you'd like a slightly more expansive version, he also has a one-volume history, La Belle France, which recycles all the Paris content and adds more information about the rest of the nation. Both books are excellent. Next, I'd recommend The Other Paris by Luc Santé, which focuses on the historical underbelly of Paris. It's a wonderful counter against histories of France focused entirely on rich, white, powerful Parisians. Instead, 
the other Paris has a ton of fascinating stories and photographs of the subaltern, the so-called other Paris. It's filled with socialists, artists, vagrants, sex workers, immigrants, Jews, the poor, and any other kind of non-conforming soul. I don't mind getting caught up in the romance of Paris, obviously, but I'm going to be honest, sometimes I get exhausted at ideas of French life, which just begin and end at a portrait of Audrey Hepburn with a caption reading, Paris is always a good idea. The other Paris is an interesting and really important corrective. Next, if you love the Dreyfus Affair miniseries, please check out Jean-Denis Bredin's magisterial work, The Affair. You cannot do better. If you like stories of World War II and the occupation, I recommend When Paris Went Dark by Ronald C. Rosebottom, as well as Alan Writings and The Show Went On, Cultural Life in Nazi-Occupied Paris. That brings me to Lynn Nicholas's incredible classic work, The Rape of Europa, which deals with the recollection and preservation of artwork during the war. If you read Monuments Men or you saw the movie, The Rape of Europa is way better. And the documentary based on the rape of Europa is perhaps my favorite documentary of all time. All of those are my nonfiction suggestions. If you're looking for some good old-fashioned storytelling, a few of my favorites include A Sentimental Education by Gustave Flaubert, The Vagabond by Colette, Lost Illusions by Honoré de Balzac, Sweet Française by Irene, by Irene Nemirovsky, and honestly, you can't go wrong with The Three Musketeers by Alexandre Dumas. I have considerably more recommendations, so I'll add them to the website soon, I promise. And I will mention, I've never read them, but since my boyfriend is such an intense fan, I have to give a shout out to Marcel Proust. If you haven't read Proust, you should probably read Proust. That's what my boyfriend has been telling me, lo, these many years. Theodora asks, are you a fan of French cheeses? If so, which are your favorites, and do you consider diving into their history? When I first moved to France at age 19, I can tell you without a doubt that the fact that surprised me more than anything else about French life was this. French people don't really eat brie that much. Not nearly at the rate that Americans do, at least. If you go into any glorious cheese aisle in France, 99% of the time, the soft rind round cheese that you pick up will not be brie. It'll actually be camembert, and you'll have to hunt around for the brie. It'll be kind of hard to find. I swear, that cracked me up every single time. It totally blows my mind. As for my favorite cheese, it's probably Port Salut, but I'm actually going to answer this question a little differently. My favorite French dairy product isn't a cheese at all. It's French yogurt. Not Yoplait. I mean the good stuff. Most grocery store brands in France will taste 1,000% better than the grocery store brands in America. But the really amazing stuff can only be found in the crèmeries. My last day in Paris in May, right after I interviewed with Oliver at the Earful Tower, I stepped into a crèmerie for a beautiful little glass jar of yogurt with passion fruit seeds at the bottom, and it was the best thing I ate in Paris. The second best dairy product after yogurt is the salted butter. Sorry, cheese! If you live in the United States, the best French butter that's relatively easy to find is from Rodolphe Le Munier, which I once saw described as the Lamborghini of butter, and I would say that is correct. 
it's about $13 for a wheel of butter, but that wheel will last you forever and it will be the best butter you ever eat. I think you can find Rodolphe Le Meunier butter in most Whole Foods locations, so it shouldn't be that hard to track down if you have a Whole Foods near you. I've only been able to find one yogurt that tastes truly French, and it's from Saint-Benoît, a little dairy here in the Bay Area. They sell their little glass pots of yogurt at Whole Foods across California, and outside of California, you might be able to find it at a natural food store. Saint-Benoît yogurt is heavenly, and I have one every night for dessert. Dita asks, do you have French listeners, and do they like your take on France? Well, to my utter shock, I do, and they do. At least, the ones who write to me say they do. I assume the French listeners who don't like my take on France roll their eyes and skip on to another show. Fair enough. One of the great joys of doing this podcast is hearing from listeners all around the world, and I hope to meet more of them in the future. Carrie, who runs that Loire Valley Chateau, I swear, you're at the top of my list. I gotta check out that chateau someday. Finally, I'm saving the best question for last, and it comes from Charles. Okay, so there's a Thunderdome of Disney Pixar movies, and only one movie about France leaves intact. Which of these do you need to make it out okay? Ratatouille, Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback of Notre Dame, or Aristocats? Charles, you've done it. You have asked the question. I have so many opinions, especially considering that uh, I am currently a fully-fledged annual passport holder at Disneyland. This question is actually threatening my relationship with my boyfriend, loyal listener and much-exploited unpaid intern, who has written several lengthy online petitions to recognize the greatness of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I'd never seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame until last year, which shocked him so much he started playing it for me immediately. Hunchback is an incredible, totally underrated movie, one that I cannot actually believe Disney made. Who was the target audience for that movie? Did they really think seven-year-olds were ready for songs about religious persecution? Who at Disney was like, you know, the children just aren't learning enough about infanticide and damnation. What if we animated it? But it's incredible, and it has Out There, which is one of the top five best Disney songs ever released. Nevertheless, I'm not going to give my vote to an animated romp about exploitation in the Catholic Church, so let's move on. I only saw the Aristocats for the first time this year. It's delightful, but it's not that memorable, and I don't have any nostalgic attachment to it, so that one's not going to get my vote either. Now we get to the real showdown. Ratatouille is incredible. I love it for so many reasons. The food sounds and looks delicious. The plight of woman chefs fighting for respect is the real star of the show. There are sly little jabs at the late Paul Bocuse. It's a wonderful film. Every time I rewatch it, it makes me happy and hungry. There's just one problem. There's no songs. I'm sorry, Disney movies with no music are no fun. Which brings me to my last option, the clear winner. Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast has it all. Gorgeous animation, hilarious jokes, and catchy songs about dinner time. 
Best of all, it has Belle, my favorite Disney princess, who ignores toxic masculinity and supports her public library, who calls out her whack neighbors to their faces every morning, who wants nothing more than to get out of her hometown and is rewarded with a lifetime living in a castle one day's ride from her hometown. Hooray! But look, Belle and I famously share the same habit of walking while reading, and like her, I promise I don't run into stuff. Unlike her, I rarely conduct my reading surrounded by a flock of inquisitive sheep. When I first moved to Paris, I picked up a copy of The Three Musketeers. One day, I started reading it while I walked out of my apartment overlooking Père Lachaise. Like Belle, I walked down the sidewalk, holding my paperback, paying attention to traffic signals but not rude passerby, until I finally looked up to see how far I'd walked, and I realized I'd made it all the way to La Défense. I walked straight across Paris. So what I'm saying is, Belle and I share the same hobbies, the same wanderlust, and the same willingness to give up that wanderlust in exchange for bookcases with swinging ladders. She married a secret hottie and spent the rest of her life reading all the books she wanted and eating enormous fancy dinners. May we all end up so happily ever after. And that wraps up this very special listener episode of The Land of Desire. Thank you so, so much to every single one of you who has supported the show over the last three years. Whether you rated and reviewed the show on iTunes, whether you shared the show with friends and family on the internet, did you write in to say hello? Did you join the Facebook community? Did you contribute to the show's Patreon account? However we've interacted along the way, it has been a joy and a privilege, and I am amazed every day at how big this whole project has become. Three years... 50 episodes, and half a million downloads later, all I can say is thank you. And until next time, au revoir.